2: Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm, uh, it's Friday, January 7th, and I'm Nick Costello, senior reporter with Ideastream Public Media and the moderator of today's forum, Changing of the Guard, a neighborhood plan for the next era of Cleveland leadership. This is the City Club's first forum of the new year. I'm glad to be here hitting the gong for the first, uh, the first gong of 2022. And this is a, a forum where we traditionally take a deep dive into the conversations that are happening around town. This is the end of Mayor Justin Bibb's first week in office. With his election victory two months ago, he joined a sea change in Northeast Ohio's civic sphere. Cleveland now has a new and diverse generation of leaders in City Hall and outside of it, and they have their own visions for the future of the city and its neighborhoods. Each of Cleveland's neighborhoods has its own character and pride, but many continue to suffer from disinvestment, which I'm sure everyone in this room knows. Research shows that persistent inequality in development, amenities, and services contributes to and exacerbates racial inequity in our city. Last year during the election, Cleveland Neighborhood Progress and Community Development Corporations developed a platform for the new administration and city council. The plan focuses on municipal modernization, infrastructure, economic development and housing. And joining us today are some of the folks who helped put that together. Jamar Doyle is executive director at Greater Collinwood Development Corporation. Tanya Manass is CEO and President at Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, and Rosemary Moudry is Executive Director at West Park Cams Neighborhood Development. Members and friends of the City <laughs> Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming our panelists. So I know that we've got a lot of, of expert practitioners in the room here, but I want to start with just some basic things so that everyone's on the same page, in particular folks who are watching or listening elsewhere. And I want to look at a couple of issues. One how are Cleveland's neighborhoods doing right now? And two, what new approach in neighborhood development would you like to see out of this new city council and administration? Uh, Tanya, could you get us started here? I remember you know, we talked last year uh, during the mayoral mm-hmm. campaign and something you told me that really stuck with me is that there are a few you know, block groups in Cleveland that are, are really hot real estate markets right now. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of the city that's, that's really struggling. Could you give us a lay of the land? How is Cleveland doing in January of 2022?
0: Well, thanks for that question, and uh, I think it really is what drove um, so much of us putting this neighborhood platform together was to raise the issues that CDC see that residents and businesses are experiencing, and one of the main things that we experience in Cleveland is that, as you said, there are about 3% of the block groups in Cleveland, and we know where they are in Ohio City, and Tremont, uh, some around University Circle, are thriving, and that's wonderful, right? We want to see that growth and that development, um, but the vast majority of our city is either uh, stable, the middle neighborhoods, which have really been the stalwart through um, the economic crisis and are where so many of us live and and thrive. Um, And then we have a significant amount of our neighborhoods that are still really struggling. And it was important to raise um, the concerns of residents and help to begin to, develop a path that council and the administration could look to uh, to address the needs that are different in each one of our neighborhoods.
2: So, so how did that reality shape then the, the recommendations that you all put together in this, in this platform?
0: Well, I think what was really critical was that, um, you know, this hasn't happened in 20 years, and um, it was a real call out from um, our uh, CDCs that, you know, and we knew this, they are on the ground, they know what the residents and businesses are experiencing, and um, in order to raise that as a as a community, as a community development system, uh, we needed to pull a platform together um, that would look at what are the common issues, right? What are the things that we need to do across the board from a housing, economic development, Uh, municipal modernization perspective infrastructure um, so that we could speak with one voice while not losing the fact that our neighborhoods um, will need different aspects of of the plan to be implemented
2: so let's talk about two of those neighborhoods right here since we've got two (laughs) representatives Uh, rosemary can you give us a picture of, of west park right now how how is the neighborhood doing my impression is that you know you are really benefiting from this this giant bonanza of of home purchases that we've seen in the past like year or two
3: Yeah, so I mean I think uh, we are lucky in West Park. Uh, West Park is one of those middle neighborhoods that has um, remained stable and in many ways strong um, over the last couple decades. Um, There are some areas where the housing market is really strong and there was multiple bidding over the last couple years. But there's also areas that are really struggling, and we have some of the um, largest public housing in in the city, in our neighborhood, and in our ward as well. And so I think one of the things about West Park is the needs of people are really diverse and different. And so figuring out how we can support residents where they are and and come up with strategies for where they are is is really important. I think on the other side, um, you know, there's new businesses that want to invest but it's also really difficult to invest when some of the commercial corridors and infrastructure is aging and struggling. And so I I think we're excited to see how how renewed interest in infrastructure and long-term planning can help continue to set West Park on a strong trajectory for the future.
2: So when you say uh, infrastructure in the commercial corridors, Mm -hmm. what are you talking about there? Could you give me some examples?
3: Yeah, so I think it's um, a a few different things, right? I think it's everything from um, roads that are too too wide uh, to uh, not enough street trees to uh, commercial properties that have been in some hands for a really long time with Mm -hmm. owners who are not really interested in The investments that are needed to attract the kind of businesses residents want to see so I think it's a a kind of a variety of things um, That kind of all play together
2: Mm -hmm. And Jamar how's Collinwood doing today?
1: Well, you know um, It's interesting because you talked about the continuum of of neighborhood realities throughout the city of Cleveland And it's really the same in Collinwood, Uh, you know our service area uh, encompasses sort of North Shore Collinwood Collinwood Village, which is near the high school, Euclid Green, um, the Forest Hills neighborhood. So it depends on where you are. And I think, you know, when we talk about sort of middle neighborhoods and um, sort of the stabilization and even some of the the housing rush that you talked about earlier, that's happening sort of along Lakeshore Boulevard and, you know, in some of the pockets along uh, East 185th Street or in the Euclid Heights portion of Euclid Green. But we have a lot of challenges, it's almost the opposite if you're talking about 152nd in St. Clair, if you're talking about the Three Points area at at 125th St. Clair. So it's really, how do you make sure that no matter where you live, if you're a resident of Cleveland, if you're a business owner in Cleveland, a, a property owner in Cleveland, you can see that your neighborhood is moving forward on the continuum of development. That looks different in a neighborhood that is thriving, Versus a neighborhood that may be classified as a middle neighborhood versus a neighborhood that is challenged and has really been struggling with Disinvestment for decades for a number of reasons lack of investment Um, Let's talk about racial disparities. Let's talk about you know all of the 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 isms that exist as to why some neighborhoods aren't thriving So we really need to get to a point where no matter where you live or where you have invested in Cleveland You can see that you are moving towards thriving and it's really sort of this this I, I call it a continuum of neighborhood development and we need to make sure everyone is moving forward whatever that looks like and include those residents to make sure that their authentic voice is a part of defining what thriving looks like for them because it may not be the same uh, neighborhood to neighborhood
2: something i'd like to hear from each of you is uh you know this this platform's got a lot of different points in it you're hitting a lot of different topics is there one Are there one or two maybe major things that you think the city could get working on right away that would be good to put in the minds of everyone in this room? Tanya, we can start with you.
0: I'm happy to start. Uh, You know, We developed this platform clearly to raise these issues during the campaign, uh, both for the mayor and for the city council races, but really just as much to be a blueprint for the next four years. We were really um, focused on the idea that these would be tangible goals, they could be measured, and um, that we could be good partners to the administration, that we could hold each other accountable and work through this process. And so I think the biggest one for us is something that my uh, friends here from the Community Development Department um, have led, which is a 10-year housing plan with a great deal of input from the community that um, is so instrumental to addressing what Jamar was talking about, and, and Rosemary, of all the different needs in a neighborhood. This plan really helps us address the appraisal issues that we've talked about before. The the disparities that we see in neighborhoods, and what it really invites, is the private market into our neighborhoods. It begins to demonstrate where uh, we need government and the um, nonprofit sector to intervene, so we get to a point where our banking partners can begin to really lend in our neighborhoods.
2: Mm-hmm. Rosemary,
3: um, <clears throat> yes. Yeah, so that, it, it's a struggle to pick one for me, <laughs> but I think I think for me, it's um, it's the areas of the plan and the priorities of the plan that speak to how how our city communicates to residents and engages with them. I think if if in the next 100 days or if in the next um, six months, uh, the city can work towards open communication, being out in neighborhoods, having community meetings, meeting with city leaders and community development regularly, I think that sets a tone that allows us to build trust. And once there's trust, any number of these priorities can happen. Um, but without that, it's going to be really hard to get residents and get leaders to buy into whatever whatever plan is advanced because they may not they may not believe that it's in their best interest.
2: hm Okay, And uh, Jamar, I mean, on, on that point, maybe, I mean, because you had mentioned before, you want to have people who live in the neighborhood feel like they've got buy-in. How do you get people to have buy-in into this sort of uh, very technical set of you know recommendations that you've got that's really for? you know, the people who are policymakers.
1: Well, I think first, although, uh, you know, there's a lot of technical expertise in this room, I think it's acknowledging that there's a lot of expertise out in the neighborhoods. It may not be technical, but that is valid and real expertise. And so we have to listen to our residents. We have to listen to our business owners. We have to hear from them as to what are their pain points? What are the issues that are affecting them the most? And I think there's an opportunity now for City Hall to begin to do that in conjunction with uh, CDCs and neighborhood progress, and through that process, I think then, to your point, um, when we talk about what are those those issues that people are facing, when we start to figure out well what what are the prescriptions, right what are the solutions, um, it's again making sure that we've listened to those voices so that our solutions are authentic to the needs of the people that we're serving, and I think that's our opportunity right now
2: mm-hmm. uh, Tanya, you'd mentioned the ten year housing plan, and I know that uh, you know the, the sort of upshot of the plan is Uh, protecting, preserving, and producing 100,000 units of housing, and it's only going to cost $2 billion to do it. Yeah. (laughs) Where is that money going to come from?
0: Yeah, and that's the thing, we laugh, but that is the kind of investment Mm -hmm. that comes from true public-private partnership. And um, you've seen in many communities, right, it's really important that uh, the initial investments that come into play are um, from The public sector more often than not, but that is in partnership with the private sector. It's been really exciting to see banking partners who we've worked with for a long time pouring over this 10 year plan and looking at, okay, if the city's going to put in a loan loss reserve, if they're going to start doing some down payment assistance, okay, that starts to mitigate our risk, and we're interested in um, investing in our communities. I think that um, one of the really exciting prospects of this new administration and a lot of the leadership at our foundations today is that um, we need uh, the national foundations um, to really be tied into national think tanks and to the work that's happening in Cleveland. Um, With all of the challenges we have here, it's really remarkable that we have very little traction from a national perspective in Cleveland. And I I do think that it's the job of um, the city and our partners. I mean, let's talk about the ARPA money, right? We use these recommendations very much to help put ARPA recommendations together. Sorry, American Rescue Plan. I shouldn't yeah. use. That's right. I, yeah. I'm trying to not use um, <laughs> acronyms. I'm sorry. Yeah, about my
2: that. boss Mike McIntyre yes. would be mad at me yes, if I didn't exactly. bust that acronym. I,
0: I, I caught it before you even <laughs> yeah. caught me. So, um, but I, I will say that, right? They, this is a historic time where the, uh, you know, I. I want to be careful because the dollars can be gone as quickly as you have them. But these are the dollars that we should be using to lay the groundwork to invite private investment in. That's really our job, is to really put ourselves out of business, right, is that the markets and the our communities get healthy enough. Um, at that point, then you start having to protect and ensure residents' uh, needs are well taken care of. But, it's an ambitious plan, but it's a 10-year plan, and what's exciting about it is that it has steps that the administration and our community can take next year.
2: On the ARPA money, the first half is here, and I, off the top of my head, I can't remember exactly how much was being dedicated toward community development mm-hmm. because there are other needs like public safety, yep. etc. Um, what do you think about the way the community development dollars are, have been dedicated so far, and what do you think the city can do with that money?
0: Um, Well, you know, at this point, the community development dollars haven't been allotted out as yet. Um, But I think that there's a lot of alignment between um, city council, the city administration, and the nonprofit community in what needs to be prioritized. And, again, a lot of it is laying that groundwork, taking care of residents, as Councilman Griffin said in his uh, uh, speech to city council, is is taking care of people and then laying that groundwork for our neighborhoods to get stronger. I I don't think there's a lot of conflict there in, in what people are proposing.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Rosemary, do you have any thoughts on how ARPA money could be spent uh, you know, for, for the neighborhood where you work, for West Park Camps Corners?
3: Yeah, I think in, in general, um, Tanya's words about laying the foundation is really critical. I think we have a rare opportunity to think, um, think in the long term and you know, address in some infrastructure things, address things related to park connections address things that are um, laying the groundwork for long, long-term long success in the city that we rarely have large chunks of money to do mm-hmm. all at once. And so I think those are the types of projects I would love to see come to fruition um, because then we can chip away at some of the other shorter-term things, but we have a rare opportunity to, to lay the groundwork for the long-term, especially on infrastructure and green space and those kinds of connections and climate resiliency.
1: Hmm. Uh, you know, general, do you have something to add to that point? Yeah, I just wanted to add, you know, I, I echo everything that Rosemary said in terms of the um, sort of physical improvements and in infrastructure. And I would also say that the ARPA uh, dollars offer the opportunity to also invest in our people. And part of what I'm thinking about is really around sort of workforce uh, development. And the reason I think that's important is, you know, just speaking to Collinwood, it's a very, it, it's a neighborhood that has uh, a large industrial base. And when we meet with industrial. Um, uh, uh, businesses all the time they talk about having a gap and needing to fill spaces particularly as their workforce is aging out yet at the same time I have a 30 plus percent unemployment rate in Collinwood. there is a mismatch in terms of skills there are jobs out there but our people are not prepared for those jobs and so this is not, and if we're talking about a rescue plan for people who live on Main Street it, then we need to get serious about mainly training people for the jobs that are here in Cleveland today and the jobs that are coming in the future because then that is going to improve uh, family health, it's going to improve family stability, their wealth, and then as that improves, now they have more money to put into their houses and to invest in their community, and that will raise our communities up. So I think that's an important point to make as well.
0: And I would just mention, sure. just to go to that, when we looked at the tax abatement policy and the housing policies, the biggest issue in Cleveland was not that it's so expensive to live here. It's that people's incomes are too low for landlords to be able to make the kind of investments they need to make in their homes. So just really reiterating what you're saying.
3: Yeah, I feel like that, that point needs to be, like, doubled down on <laughs> Tanya. The the point about, um, you know, people's incomes needing to raise up, because I think that, that speaks to a lot of the points in the plan um, that... That if you can if you can charge X for rent, um, but it takes Y to to renovate a building or renovate a home, um, then it's a disincentive for the owners of that, that property to, to take care of it because they can't they can't then uh, pay their mortgage or uh, pay the loan that they took out in order to rehab it. And so I think that's that's a critical issue: is how do how do we close those gaps? And I think. Uh, a lot of the sort of smaller priorities in the plan address some of
1: those issues. And I want to Jamar, add please. one last thing to <laughs> that. No, keep going. <laughs> it gets the wheels going. <laughs> I, I want to mention a lot of times when we talk about sort of the renters too, uh, um, our, our uh, landlords and property owners, yeah. um, you know, there are the, the sort of big players out there. But really what we miss is that a lot of times, it's, it's the mom and pop owners. They own maybe just one house and rent the other side out because they live in a duplex. Or maybe they own just two or three to sort of supplement their income. And so they're almost in the same boat to their point. It's not that it's a big nameless, faceless corporation that's choosing not to invest in our houses. There are some of those, and we need to go after them hard. Mm-hmm. But we also need some equity in that field because there are a lot of, you know, just, uh, you know, Cleveland residents that may own one or two additional properties, and they're struggling, you know. It's, it's part of their income stream, and to the same point, it's difficult to make those improvements, um, and we need to figure out a way to help those um, small uh, property owners because they want to invest they just don't have the resources.
2: Well and that actually gets to a point that I wanted to bring up which is and I think that this this kind of came out of, of conversations that I'd had with you Tanya about this plan is uh, that there's just a lot of need for home repair money right, right? Yes. because you know people in Cleveland probably are living in a hundred year old house uh, you know give or take and it, it just needs repair where how much need do you think is really out there uh, that you know needs to be addressed?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly it's a little it's, it, it does feel a little overwhelming um, because we we do have housing stock that has um, not had that ongoing maintenance and investment. We have a, an aging population in Cleveland and um, it's very difficult at the best of times to get a loan for home repair and, and frankly most of our um, residents can't afford a loan for home repair. Um, and so it is really one of the first recommendations and, and I think one of the strongest ones in the plan is that we get really serious about um, I mean we'd love to get to rehab right that that's really bringing up the housing stock but we get really serious about repair in the community
2: I'm trying to I had the numbers written down in some other notes but in the 10-year housing plan there are some examples of you know how many repairs the city is able to fund each year it seemed like it might be a couple hundred it's not a not we're not talking about huge numbers here
0: well here's what I'd say there there is um, a it is very challenging with current federal money and federal processes to do the kind of repair work that we need to do. We go back to workforce, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we have an incredible dearth of contractors in the city of Cleveland, and that's an unbelievable opportunity, but it, it's a significant gap. Um, I, I think we are in a time period now where we need to say, how do we get it done? and not look at what we've done in the past as a indication of what we can do in the future. Um, there are funds to be able to move this forward. Um, I think if we're talking about people's quality of life, we talk about the social determinants of health. We sent people home during the pandemic to um, conditions that were frankly less safe than probably um, being in an environment where they would get COVID. And like in this environment, in this world, that's really unacceptable. Um, so I think we need to look at how do we do much more. And um, there are cities that are doing home repair at real scale. And that's what we need to to look at doing.
2: Hmm. Um, uh, Rosemary, did you have something to add on that point?
3: I I was just gonna say, I think there's one particular point in the plan that um, kind of calls out there are existing programs and when people are able to access them, they do work really well. And so I think that's one of the, the biggest opportunities is um, not having to always reinvent the wheel, but figure out how to clean up programs and make them easier for people to access because there is money sitting on the table that's not getting used in programs each year because mm-hmm. people give up participating. Uh, and I think that's, you know, that's a big opportunity for us in community development is to really be able to use the programs, talk to the city about um, some of the challenges of accessing them and working together to think about how to streamline the uh, the process to make it easier for people to participate in what's already out there.
2: Mm-hmm. another Another point of the plan that I wanted to get to was uh, you know the platform calls for policies to combat predatory investing. Mm-hmm um jamar is that something that you think that you're seeing in in cleveland you know people who are just (laughs) investing to suck out rental income or whatever with no intention of putting money into the neighborhood
1: no absolutely i mean i I think we have to figure out how uh legislatively and and also through uh, the judicial system then um to get uh really cracked down on that there are predatory uh uh, lenders uh, predatory well there's predatory lenders out there too and we can talk about that later but uh, there are predatory investors out there who, you know, are purchasing properties, have no intent on improving it. Either want rent to suck rent out, as you said, or there's also a lot of patient money in Cleveland, which I don't understand. They, can, they will buy property and do absolutely nothing, pay the taxes and do nothing. And they do just enough that you can't enforce but you're, you're, you're holding the neighborhood back. And so I think figuring out how legislatively we can deal with that and, you know, through our tax policies, through through um, laws and what have you, how do we disincentivize people coming into the neighborhood, buying and holding and saying, you know, and then even when CDCs come, they're, you're like, I'm making you a fair offer. No, I want a million dollars. And it's just like, okay, you want a two-storefront building on Lakeshore. I get it. You're near the lake, but this is not... I can't pay you beyond reality, and they just wanna sit on the property waiting for a payday. And it's just patient money, and they'll pay the taxes, and they'll let the building rot. It's insane. And that's
0: that's why the market solution there is, you know, site control is everything, right? If you own the site, if you own the property, you dictate whether it's gonna be well taken care of or not. And, one of the things while we're looking at those policies and trying to put them in place is to really enable um, nonprofits like our community development corporations to get in front of um, the predatory buyers. And um, there are really ways that we could be doing that with ARPA funds. And then again, mitigating the risk for our banking partners so that they could help support us um, purchasing more of those properties. Would you so oh, Jamar, go ahead. I was just going
1: to say to Tanya's point, because right now I can't compete with those predatory yeah, investors. Right. So it, I just don't have the resources. And so I think figuring out you know, either the city or through CDCs, or how that is we can better resource the uh, different structures that we have in the city now to go against and compete with those predatory investors. But right now it's, it's extremely challenging.
2: Who, who are they? I mean, you know, can you give me a sense of, are they people you can actually reach? Because uh,
1: <laughs>
2: I know that like I was looking at some recent property transfers and I found there's a French company that's buying up properties and they're selling them on YouTube, YouTube videos in French for European investors, buy a house in Cleveland. Uh, they're probably, they're not moving in. You know, they're trying to get rental income You know to luxembourg or wherever like (laughs) is that is that an issue that you deal with where you actually just cannot reach the owners
3: so i think yes um but i think another layer to this is when we talk about predatory investment it's not just actually about the ownership a lot of that predatory investment is being facilitated by local sort of predatory management companies and Mm -hmm and this infrastructure that sort of um, caters to uh, foreign or California buyers or things like that. And then they also offer, you know, maintenance afterwards and they'll resell the property for you. And and so it's it's sort of a cycle. So it's not just about the property owner in itself and, you know, that French company, but there's local players who are really facilitating this at a really high level. And in some ways, I think they're the more dangerous players because they are sucking up so many more of the properties and, um, and they know the local game really, really well. Um, and so I think we really need sort of, kind of a trio or or suite of things to look at that at a a lot of different angles from both housing court and um, you know the way we do sales in Cleveland and disclosures and things like that um, to be able to address it.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, I mean I know Cleveland I think does not have point-of-sale inspections right is that is that something you think is is something the city should look at?
0: (laughs) Well every every (laughs) suburb does You know, and and listen, it's a complicated issue because um, it does make it very difficult for um, uh, low- and middle-income homeowners to sell their homes. So it's easy to say that that's a a panacea, but I think that there um, are—we didn't put it in the actual recommendations because there was a lot of angst around us doing so, but there's probably some middle ground there that um, would make it more difficult to sell a home with doing nothing.
2: I'm trying to remember the wording in the in the platform, yeah. but it does say you know it, it stops short of saying point of sale yeah. inspection. Yeah, correct. Yeah, I'm looking at our time here. Do we want to start uh, inviting people to think about questions if you've got any in mind? Um, and probably in a couple minutes, we'll move over to that side of things. Um, I see some people already do. Um, but uh, before before we do that, I did have another point that I wanted to get to here, following uh, this in my notes. Oh, and it's time to something that you had mentioned about. Uh, trying to get a workforce for doing home repairs. I know one of the recommendations in the plan is increase the number of building and housing inspectors by 50% in 36 months. Right. Um, how How do you think that can be done, especially in this kind of labor market where finding work is tough, finding workers is tough?
0: Yeah, I mean, listen, we are... Um, realistic about the fact that this is not a one year, this is a four year and it's also laying the groundwork to do things more um, incrementally over time Uh, but there's no question that um, one of our major issues is is staff at City Hall. Uh, We don't have enough people doing building and housing inspections um, everything from encouraging development in our city more broadly um, You know, there is a feeling it's very difficult to do development in Cleveland Mm -hmm. and and a large part of that is, is having enough people in the building and housing department across the board, um, though, uh, the, the contractor base to do work, whether you're in the city of Cleveland or, or really anywhere right now, unfortunately, we have not encouraged the trades in this country as we need to, and um, and yet I think there's some acknowledgement of that and a real push with CMSD to do um, more work uh, within the school systems um, to encourage this, but I don't think we're there.
2: Mm-hmm. Rosemary, do you have something to add on that point? No, I was nodding <laughs> along. You're just nodding <laughs> along. <Yeah. laughs> Well, you know, Jamar, are there any other, like, you know, really big, important needs that you see in Collinwood that you think the city ought to really think about as new administration, new city council are gearing up for for the next four years?
1: You know, I I think we covered a lot of it under the housing. Um, I would sort of move maybe to economic development, and one of the proposals that I think could take off really quickly is thinking through uh, the white box Mm -hmm. initiative. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when I think about our retail areas within Collinwood, you know, there's a lot of great buildings, but they need a lot of investment. And the business owners that are interested, again, it's, it's a resource issue. They may not have the resources to totally bring that building back, especially in the state that it's in, if it's been vacant five, 10, 20 years. Um, if we could do something where again that facility has been white boxed and some of the maybe you know sort of major things are are, are, are taken care of you can walk in and then kind of envision your restaurant or envision your you know uh, art studio or whatever it is then I think it gets us closer and it makes us quite frankly I think more competitive with um, other communities you know in our region where they have uh, the building stock that's already there and you know, you come to Collingwood, and again, we've got, just like our century-old houses, we've got century-old uh, uh, commercial real estate that really needs that 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 investment. And I think that, that is a key uh, recommendation. And sorry, could helpful. you just,
2: for, for those of us who aren't familiar, what what do you mean when you say white box?
1: So, uh, and I'm going to rely on my colleagues to help me with this, too. But essentially, you know, versus, you know, a lot of times you walk into a, a storefront, and, you know, um, it may need everything, right? It may... Um, uh, be ripped out and and, and pipes missing and all of that it's sort of really say can we get it to a point where um, you know the walls are back the systems are in place um, and it's just sort of white boxed right so it's just you go in and imagine if this room just had white paint on the walls and then you can customize it if you want to add walls or you know uh, do what you need to do to make it work for your business but the framing is there. It's not you walking into a building and saying, oh, my gosh, I've got to put in electrical. I've got to put in piping. I've got to rebuild the walls. I've got to fix the rafters. I've got to, it, and then you just say, I've got to go somewhere else, and that's what happens, right? So we remove that so you walk in and say, oh, wow, this is a beautiful space. I could do this, and I could do that, and that's where we want to get to.
2: So uh, before we go to questions, I had one, one thing I wanted to put to all of you, and that is uh, another part of this plan talks about municipal modernization. And, you know, our new mayor campaigned on a modern and responsive city hall, a phrase I heard plenty last year. Uh, could each of you give me an example of something you think uh, could be modernized at the city? What would it look like? Tanya, we can start with you
0: i have a long list (laughs) but uh, but i I think mostly you know rosemary kind of touched on it is really making city hall transparent um bringing it online for our communities the idea that you can apply for permits you can do some of that now easily online you can see what land buying clot you want to purchase You can look at all of the the neighborhoods and better understand you can Apply for your uh, birth certificate, death certificate, all of the things that today, you know, most cities you can do a lot from your home, and you don't need to come down to city hall. Um, I think is a huge part of, of this work.
2: Mm-hmm. Rosemary,
3: yeah. So I think uh, I think a lot of for me, the municipal monetization is more is is more about the way that the city engages with the community. And so, Tanya talked a little bit about how people don't have to come down to city hall through technology, but I think it's also about having a staff at City Hall who's been to every neighborhood um, people who know what your neighborhood looks like and know what you're talking about when you're engaging with them uh, and having a mayor who's who's spending time regularly outside of City Hall and in neighborhoods and I think um, you know I feel very optimistic about that Um, so far the mayor's shown a lot of interest in doing that and I think uh, I I feel very positive about that being a really accomplishable goal in the near-term future
2: Jamar, something that you think City Hall should should modernize?
1: Uh, You know, I I echo everything uh, uh, Tanya and and Rosemary have already said. I think the only thing I would add is also uh, internal collaboration. Um, I think both between the departments, um, but then also uh, in reference to how, say, permitting process and other processes work, right? So part of modernization for me is if a uh, business owner goes down to get a permit, or to do a construction project, it doesn't become, I need to go to building and housing, and then I need you to physically go to the, the planning department and get something else stamped, and then goes like, you've got to physically do all of that running around, when in this 21st century, how come there's not a way that, internally, that can happen at City Hall, and there's just a one-stop shop, for someone who wants to invest in the city, or if it's a resident who needs to engage with city services, be it online, remote, or if they come in person, it should be a one-stop shop and not that they have to run around to uh, 10 different departments and get lost, and you know, uh, it just, I just think it's, it's almost ridiculous in the area we're in. So I think that's a part of modernization uh, to streamline that, and it will also, I think, foster some collaboration between the departments.
3: Yeah, I think, I think that's a great point, Damar. It's just this sort of um, unified, similarly how we're trying to unify our voices, mm-hmm. I think City Hall also unifying their their voices across departments so that the same messages are going out to residents yes. and business owners. They're they're getting the same feedback on priorities and things that are important across planning, you know, across traffic and engineering and all of those those departments.
2: Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we're now going to move to the, uh, the Q&A section here from our audience, both Uh, physical and virtual we welcome questions from everyone city club members guests those of you joining us via the live stream or radio broadcast on 90.3 idea stream public media if you'd like to tweet a question please tweet it at the city club and you can also text your questions to 330-541-5794 that's 330-541-5794 and our city club staff will try to work it into the program And could we have our first question, please? Thank you.
4: Good afternoon. Um, I think that there is a lot of jubilation in the city right now because we have a new mayor, at least on planning Twitter, there is. (laughs) Um, And so, I have a, a, a thing that keeps me up at night, is that we in Cleveland are so good at patting ourselves on the back and talking about how great we are um, that we're gonna miss something. And so I see two Gen Xers and two Millennials sitting on a stage, and so my question is, what do the, i what what do the Gen Xers and the Millennials need to do that's different than those that have come before us? so that we're not so busy patting ourselves on the back because we got a new mayor and then nothing really happens.
1: Sure. Who wants to take that one? Jamar?
3: <laughs> Go Jamar. <laughs> oh, I, I,
1: No, I, I love this question and I'm so glad, Chris, that, that you asked it because the one thing that's kept me up is, and I think it's adjacent to what you're asking, is that we don't fall back into what's comfortable or what's familiar. And I think that is what's dangerous for everyone, right? We're at this moment. I think we're in the honeymoon phase, right, if we think of a relationship, and we don't want to, uh, we want to stay in that phase, right, because everything seems possible right now, but it's too easy to fall back on old patterns, and we can't block new ideas because of tradition. We can't hold back new leadership because of this is how we always have done things, and I think a lot of times, after the excitement wanes, we go back to, well, you have to do it this way, or this is how we've always done it. And then we start to suppress new leadership, folks get discouraged, and then we're back at those same old patterns. And and I think that's what we have to really guard against, because you know, this is week one. You know, the question is, what happens in week four, week 12, week 22, when things are hard, when the challenges start popping up, and it's easy to default back to This is how we've always done it. It's comfortable. It's familiar. Let's do it this way. And I think, you know, our new mayor and the incoming administration, our new council leadership, um, CDCs, uh, you know, there's a lot of new leadership right now, right, in town, both in government and even in different institutions. We need to guard against that and say, what's possible? How do we make sure that we're surfacing new ideas, thinking about things differently, and then forging ahead, regardless of... Uh, some of the challenges that may exist because otherwise we'll fall back into the same old patterns and in four years we'll have the same conversation and a few neighborhoods will have moved the needle and we'll still be talking about the poorest big city that has the least broadband access and dot 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 and what really happened and we don't want to be there
3: i think chris you know it's it's an excellent question and to me um what makes me glad that we're here today is that You know we we spent a lot of time last year working on ideas and a platform and so now now we do have a new administration and it's not pat ourselves on the back for putting together a platform it's we have to now keep our voices as an industry we have to keep our voices unified and we have to keep ticking away at all of the items we put in and keep raising those issues Every day when we're engaging with our broader community and with the city um, that to me that to me is the work that's ahead of us is Continuing to stay unified and stay on point and just keep kind of grinding it out is is where we're at now that's
2: a great point. We'll Go to our next question, please uh, good afternoon. Um, Just making sure the microphone is on
4: okay uh, Jamar are uh, you you were wonderful as a high school leader when you were attending John Hay High School. And so I know you're, you're quite humble, but I'd like for you to share with the audience um, what you were involved in student leadership and how those lessons as a student leader have helped you in the leadership that you experience today.
1: Sure. Well, first, thank you, one of my mentors, uh, Merle Johnson, and thank you for all of your leadership on the State Board of Education. But, um, yeah, I I actually got excited about uh, civic involvement um, in high school, as you mentioned, at John Hay, sitting on something that was called Citywide Student Council at the time. So, um, you know, members from across the city, all of the high schools in town would get together, and we really were a mini city council, and we actually had... Uh, civic day where we get to go to city council it was in the mid 90s sit in those council leadership chairs And it just it did something to it showed you what was possible, right? And it started to spark an idea that you know you anything is possible in terms of if you're if you work hard and You you put your ideas out there, and I, I can't say enough about all of the folks that invested in me um, Through that process. And I'm excited to hear that CMSD still has a form of it where all of the students get together and are able to come downtown, experience city council, experience government. Um, And I think we need to do more of that because we don't know what leadership is out there in our elementary schools, our middle schools, and our high schools that are ready to emerge. And we shouldn't discount the fact that just because someone may be 14 or 16 um, that their ideas aren't valid. And they see the city through a lens that we may, I may not realize anymore at 42, right? Um, Somebody who's 14 and 16, they have a different experience of it. We've got to figure out what that is, um, what makes them successful, but then what are some of their challenges so that we can address that and make sure that they can thrive because they're going to be sitting here. And I want to find the next person that's going to be not just Jamar, but way beyond anything I've been able to accomplish, right? And they're out there. They're in our schools. So I think we just have to invest in that. Uh, uh, human capital uh, and propel it forward.
2: Thank you so much. And I wasn't just scrolling Twitter while you were talking. I was just trying to see if we had any other questions to add to the conversation. <laughs> and we have one right in the room. Thank you so much.
3: Hello, um, my name is Angelia Gaston.
5: I'm currently an urban studies student at CSU. Um, <laughs> um, I just had a question about how do we deal with current and future businesses Um, their development and stuff like that regarding the the decrease in traffic because of the corridor. So, um, especially in these main arteries on the east side, uh, St. Clair, Superior, I could see it every day. I'm also a police officer, so I see it every day. um, The decrease in traffic um, just as it opened up just a few months ago and there aren't many businesses there, but I hear that there are hopes of businesses being there, and with the decrease in traffic and this corridor getting longer and bigger, um,
2: how do we compensate for that? And I'm sorry, I just want to make sure I'm clear. Were you talking about the Opportunity Corridor in particular? Yes. Gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, we've got this brand new big road, uh, you know, going from... I-490 up to uh, University Circle. There's promise of, of new business, like a, a, a you know cold storage for food processors. What do you guys want to see in this space? What should there be in this in this new space?
3: Well, and, and oh, go ahead. I okay. was just saying, and, and the question was also, what happens to the to the main streets that are have less traffic because of the corridor? Correct? Yes. Ah, okay. Um, go I, ahead. I can start. So I, I think that the the first piece
0: um, is that. Planning. I, I remember this uh, from 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 school, right? From grad school, is that there's a business cycle an economic development cycle and a political cycle. And the economic development cycle is like 20 years. And that feels very daunting, and um, yet it really needs that much time to see a new place come to maturation and and the changes that come. So um, you can't really attract businesses, the kind of industrial and warehouse type businesses that are really intended to provide jobs for Cleveland residents. So it's not really intended to be retail, which is why I'm hoping it won't take away too much from the corridors. You don't see that until the infrastructure is there, right? The Euclid Corridor, you didn't see the businesses start coming in the investment till the infrastructure was there. So I think there's a lot of work being done to attract businesses that will provide uh, family-sustaining wages for our residents, and um, we need to be a little patient and have some faith that it's coming. Um, In terms of the current commercial corridors. I think it's some of what Rosemary was saying about really investing in infrastructure on those corridors. right we take St. Clair that's today and we actually implement the midway plan which is enormous mm-hmm. right to really bring um, bike infrastructure to that road and um, and then we have to choose which is really difficult as community and economic development professionals where we focus because if you scatter investment everywhere you're really not going to see improvement anywhere and so if there's a section of St. Clair I'm just using that as an example that we really try to double down on that section so that um, business owners uh, and investors really see some traction in where the work was.
3: And I just wanted to add, I think, you know, you kind of talked a little bit about traffic counts and things like that decreasing. I think, you know, the future of, of neighborhood businesses and those kind of corridor businesses are about also building up the residential base around those areas. And so it's okay if commuters who are on their way to Cleveland Clinic aren't going down St. Clair, as long as the side streets around there are populated with people who are looking for a place to eat in the evening, who want to grab coffee with friends, that I think is what really will support the retail on those on those spaces more than cars that are whipping past at a high speed. So I think it's it's kind of a, two, a two-sided a two thing, right? We have to invest in the infrastructure, and then we also have to invest in, in building and bringing back residents that can support the businesses so that there's enough people there who to to spend the dollars.
1: And I know we've got a couple questions, so I'll be brief. I think the other portion of it uh, is getting creative with how we can help those existing business owners, because I think what the pandemic has sort of shown is that uh, so much is moving online, um, that really there's an opportunity for those corridors to become places where you can have a unique experience. But I think the other thing is, you know, a, a lot of those businesses have been there for, you know, 10, 20, 30, they may be generational businesses. Um, They may not know how to engage online or have the infrastructure to engage online. And when you look at sort of, you know, sites like Etsy's and, and others, you know, folks are looking for unique items that really a lot of times are in our neighborhoods, but they may not be online and offering them. So I think we also have to rethink what is successful for some of those businesses. Can we work with them to build up their online presence? And maybe it's not just people coming in and out, but maybe they're selling to people all around the world. That still is successful, because I think we, we may have to begin to realize, depending on how we come out of this and if, if online shopping continues to take off, It may not be as active on our corridors unless they're experience-based and not just sort of retail-based, but we can do something to help those retailers, um, you know, engage in a different way and get access to the e-commerce side of things. Um, And that, I think, is a big opportunity that maybe through the city and through our CDCs we can help some of those legacy businesses think about their businesses differently and and open up a new market.
2: Well, thank you so much. Uh, Next question. yes, sir.
1: Coming,
4: I'm an immigrant migrator to the U.S. Uh, What my question is that we talk about all of these things, but we don't talk about immigrants migrating into the inner city or the refugees, because that is, they open 84 some percent of the immigrants open businesses. But none of the emphasis from the city hall or from the county has been on immigrants or migrants or refugees. What is your game plan to try to encourage not only immigrants, but students who come to schools that can stay behind and work and live in the city of Cleveland?
0: So, um, thank you for asking that question, uh, because at the end of the day, one of the most important things um, in this neighborhood platform is to make Cleveland a livable city, a place where people want to come and invest, and um, A really significant part of that is increasing the population, right? We all talk about it. Cleveland was built for 900,000 to a million residents, and it's very difficult to sustain with under 400,000. We have seen the revitalization of communities all over the country um, by attracting uh, immigrants and refugees. And um, I think one of the things in the platform that we didn't talk about is um, really marketing our neighborhoods, marketing Cleveland. Unfortunately, and and this is just the way it tends to be, if you turn on the 6 o'clock news or you look at media, all you hear about the negatives, and and without meaning to, that's Mm -hmm. mostly what we focused on today Mm -hmm. as well. But there is incredible heritage and culture and amenities and um, walkability and uh, community in the city of Cleveland and in its neighborhoods. And one of the things that City Hall used to do, and we really want to get back to is partnering on a really robust marketing campaign um, that will help especially um, students who have come and invested time and energy to study in our schools to think about staying in Cleveland. And there is, um, I mean, when you study innovation and you look at what um, makes for a vibrant economy, it is a diversity of people and backgrounds. And um, Cleveland's history is all about that. And and I think um, I'm excited to see uh, the um, amount, I think, Uh, the conversation has changed in the last five years and and more beyond uh, we have to take care of who's here and making it kind of an either or versus an and, Mm -hmm. right? We need to take care of who's here, and we do that by inviting more people in um, who will help raise up uh everybody here so i i'm sorry as you can tell i'm really passionate about this one so sorry
2: about that well and one thing i've heard from talking with people in the in the resettlement world is that particularly for refugee resettlement housing costs are an issue yeah
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and we are we are partnering with the refugee resettlement agencies and clearly one of the things we're concerned about is the costs to resettle refugees where typically you do on the near west side is is higher and now that's an opportunity to bring refugees more into the St. Clair neighborhood and, and other east side neighborhoods. Um, but that's, it's a lift and, and really important that we do that.
2: Great, another question please. Thank you, good afternoon.
3: Jeannie Smith from the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District. You spoke about investment in infrastructure and resiliency, climate resiliency. Can you talk about how clean water works, specifically sewer and stormwater management investment, fit into the plan? So I, I don't know if we specifically um, t- call out those things, but I think in the plan, um, uh, we talk a lot about green infrastructure and tree canopy and those things in particular. And um, so for me, I think, uh, you know, when when Nick was asking what are our top priorities for me, um, one of the things that rises to the top is is the goal of reducing the number of neighborhoods whose tree canopy is um, below 30%. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a huge goal and kind of incredibly critical to both climate resiliency and the livability of our neighborhoods, but also kind of critical for the sewer district and clean water. Um, you know, in West Park, we've been working with some residents whose street is regularly flooding and things like that and needing to spend time on education and talking about the role trees and other, other types of green infrastructure can play in reducing those things um, and preventing flooding that, you know, just building a bigger sewer pipe is not always gonna be the answer um, for them. And so I think, I think indirectly is, is really to me how, how we speak to those issues.
1: Jamar, do you have anything to add on that? I was just going to say, and actually Rosemary hit on it at the end, so I was going to be quiet, but I I think part of it, too, um, you know, making sure that we're doing those things that can reduce the inflows into the sewers, but also when the plan talks about infrastructure sort of Um, You know sort of what's under the streets Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of it, you know Is already happening through the sewer districts projects to you know reduce the combined sewer overflows, right? And that's important to me that Collinwood being a lakefront uh, community We want to reduce those days that people can't swim uh, in the lake because of you know strong runoff So I think when we talk about infrastructure and what's under the street It also goes to how do we uh, update and improve our infrastructure so that we are investing in clean water through all through a number of different um, vehicles
2: and Dan, I think, has a question here for us from the World Wide Web. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The, the interwebs. Um, for this count, it comes from a, a listener on Twitter. What can the CDCs and housing court be doing to inform slash leverage relationships to support effective code enforcement in this new administration?
1: you read that one more time It was a long question i'm sorry i hope it didn't disappear i'm putting no, you on did, the spot it didn't disappear
2: sorry. it didn't disappear but uh, the what can cdcs and, and housing court be doing to inform and leverage relationships to support effective code enforcement oh,
1: oh to oh, go no no go right go okay, ahead. okay well
0: an, an initiative that the the city did start under former councilman brancatelli and the community development department was something called the healthy homes initiative mm-hmm. which uh, really uh, put in every CDC uh, an engagement person who um, their work was really to engage with residents and, and landlords to help them better understand how to maintain their properties and connect them to resources. Because one of the things we found, and Jamar talked about this before, is that code enforcement when people don't have the resources to improve their homes really is just exacerbating the problem, right? And so um, one of the things Mayor Jackson had really pushed is we don't want to just send more people to housing court. Um, We really want to try to keep people out of housing court, do more that's preventative. And so that partnership between um, the Code Enforcement Division Uh, At building and housing community development and the CDC's who are in the neighborhoods And I think we keep saying that because they're closest to residents really able to help build that trust that will get a resident to take The time and energy um, to engage in programs that are again often very difficult to access but could help them greatly and and so really I
1: just was gonna uh, echo what Tanya said in terms of you know the partnership between housing court CDC's and the city and the building and housing department specifically uh, I think is key right and and that's really what healthy homes initiative is in part about Um, It is enforcement where enforcement uh, is appropriate, but it is also making sure that we have and we talked about the resources for uh, Home repair earlier that uh, if it really is a homeowner that it just is struggling. We don't want to you know, smack them in the face, right? We want to be able to say, here is a resource that can help you maintain your home. And we really want to get to the point that we're talking about preventative uh, measures before it reaches that point that, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, the point of no return, right? So how much of that can we prevent through programming and through coordination between CDCs, Housing Court, and uh, the Building and Housing Department? That's going to be
2: key. Well, thank you so much. It's with great regret that I have to wrap because there's other great questions coming in. But um, today at the City Club, we've been listening to a conversation outlining a neighborhood plan for the next era of Cleveland leadership. We've been joined by Jamar Doyle, Executive Director at Greater Collinwood Development Corporation, Tanya Menes, CEO and President at Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, and Rosemary Mudry, Executive Director at West Park Cams Neighborhood Development. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you so much to our panelists and to our guests, friends, and members of the City Club. I'm Nick Castell This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org.